Card presents Back Issue Bloodpath with your hosts, Andrew Young and Petula Neal. Another guy that proves that, uh, hey, maybe these filmmakers are comic writers in disguise. Welcome to Back Issue Bloodbath. I'm Andrew Young. I'm Petula Neal. And this week, we're doing another creative spotlight on a man who we've covered a few filmmakers to comic creators before. Uh, but this one was actually uh, one that, you know, had the opportunity back in the 90s to become a comic creator, but didn't do so until the mid-2000s. And that is Reginald Hudland, who uh, instead made a lot of movies and ended up becoming the creative director of BET before taking on comics as a regular job for a number of years. Longtime comic fan, though. Been a fan for years. And, of course, has worked, worked with cartoonists throughout his career, even with his movies and television work. So for you, Petula, what would you say is the Reginald Hudlin comic that you put up as like, oh, this one, this is the best of his work? I, I don't know if it's the best, but it's the most fun, the two the hard way. Uh, okay. Luke, Luke Cage and uh, Black Panther. It's him doing the best version of the trope that Stephanie makes fun of in Living Heroes, where if one black hero is involved, like all of a sudden all the black heroes are there. Yeah. But because he's such a fan, the way he writes every character is so true to those characters. And it almost feels like an expert in each one of those characters is writing them. Like, yeah. And it, it's just a good time. And you can tell it is a bit like that feeling on, if any of you listeners have ever watched Black Lady Sketch Show, like when you look around and you're like, oh, it's just us. And like everybody's just relaxing and having a good time. That was the thing about when Reginald Hudlin took on Black Panther is that he originally pitched them a limited series. And they said, we love this stuff, keep going. And so that made him sit and think, he's like, well, what do I want to see happen with Black Panther? And the first thing was, he goes, well, he's a king, he should have a queen. And that's what gave him the impetus to write the Storm story, bringing her into the world of Black Panther. And he was very much like, I want him to interact with all the other black superheroes in the Marvel Universe. I feel like Black Panther doesn't do that. I think he should. And so you bringing that up is like, that's exactly what he was going for. So yeah, of course, his energy was coming off the page with those issues. It's uh, Reginald Hudland, longtime comic fan. He grew up with two older brothers who were like serious comic book collectors who would make him wash his hands before he'd touch their books. And that's where he fell in love with like Neil Adams, Batman and stuff like that. And of course, he became a, a, a big time director. And in 2004, he actually had his first published comic. And he did it with Boondocks creator Aaron Vincent Magruder and cartoonist Kyle Baker. The book was called Birth of a Nation, a comic novel, and was about a East St. Louis community of African Americans who, when George Bush gets voted in, they decide we're going to secede from the U.S. and have our own nation called Blackland. And that was what the story was about. And that was his first grad. That was the, and he wrote that graphic novel with, with, uh, with Aaron and was like, yeah, this is fun. This is great. And then didn't really think about, oh, this will become like a job for me, you know, cause I'm 
I'm filming movies, I'm filming TV, I'm filming commercials. And then one day he was shooting a commercial and he was telling his storyboard artist the, the kind of shots that he wanted for the storyboards. And with every storyboard artist, he kind of always did the same thing where he'd bring up 60s comic books. He'd talk about Jack Kirby and he'd talk about Jim Steranko and he'd talk about the way they'd lay stuff out. And this particular storyboard artist, Paul Power, went, hey, do you like Neil Adams? He's like, yeah, I like Neil Adams. He goes, do you, do you want to meet him? And of course, Reginald Hyde was like, yeah, of course I want to meet him. And so he called him up and Neil Adams was like, why don't you come visit me next time you're in New York? So the next time he was in New York, he went and visited Neil Adams and Neil Adams was shown around his studio, showed him all the artwork and everything. And he goes, do you know the guys at Marvel? And he's like, not personally. He goes, you ever wanted to meet them? He's like, yeah, yeah. He goes, would you ever like to write for Marvel Comics? He's like, yeah, I would. So he put him in touch with Joe Casada, and a week later, he's meeting with Joe Casada and Axel Alonso. And he it was just a meeting, but he walked out of that meeting with the Black Panther pitch. And suddenly he was in comics and he ended up being in comics for a good while, mainly with the Black Panther book. He ended up doing a three-year run on it and uh, created Shuri with John Romita Jr. and really left a mark. Now, we've talked about different runs on the Black Panther, but I think I remember saying to you that this one was the one for me that really kind of stuck out because it was doing all the stuff that the Christopher Priest book was doing, but doing it in Wakanda and making it a lot more fun. Because it was dark and gritty with uh, with Priest. But with this, it was a lot more like, wow, bang, surprise. Yeah. I feel like his version of T'Challa always, like, he's serious. He's, you know, as the kids would say, standing on business. But he enjoys his job a lot more, I think. And the way he relates to all of the women in his life. It just feels less tortured and more just like he's having a good time. Whether he's just like spitting lines to Monica or talking about how his father's love for his mother inspired him. Like his version of T'Challa is just like enjoying himself. So it's nice to see him at home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, it's like he ended up bringing in some longstanding stuff into the comics lore for Black Panther because, you know, ta Coates has talked that Christopher Priest really informed his run. But there was a lot of groundwork within the Marvel Universe that keeps popping up because of what Reginald Hudlin did in his run of Black Panther, mainly like the Storm storyline, bringing her in. I remember you were telling me that you really dug the, the origin story about them meeting his children, right? Yeah. And him getting distracted by his lifelong grudge. With Claw. Listen, he killed a sibling and your father tried to kill your pregnant mother, shot yeah. him with his own gun. Like, it's going to leave it. a mark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. But it's Storm. Like, sir, I mean, I don't know. That, that's tough. That's tough. <laughs> I'm like, I get it, but also, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. it's crazy. And so this particular run of Black Panther, Volume 4, ran for about 41 issues. Original Heaven was on the book till issue 38, and then Jason Aaron finished out the series. But uh, during that time, he also did a number of crossovers with the X-Men and other, other characters like that. And even after leaving the book, he would still help with the launch of Volume 5, scripting a few issues, mainly the introduction of Shuri becoming Black Panther. And uh, he co-wrote issue seven with Jonathan Mayberry, who then became the writer. But then after that, he did in June of 2010, 
a mini series that I really enjoy called Black Panther, Captain America, Flags of Our Fathers. Now, in the initial Black Panther story that Reginald Hudlin wrote, it was, of course, an origin story of T'Challa. But at the beginning, in the first issue, it laid kind of the history of the fact that Wakanda has forever been an unconquered nation. That you could not, if you tried to break their borders, they would send you packing or send you dead. That was just the way it was. And for like, I think a page and a half, there's like a quick little blurb about Captain America trying to chase a Nazi into Wakandan space. And Black Panther, which would have been T'Challa's grandfather, sent him packing. And of course, a lot of fanboys had problems with that. Reggie Hudlin has talked about a number of times that it's like people freaked out about that. People still yell at him about that. And he's like, no, it's like the, and he also, apparently also people are angry with him. The fact that he said that Wakanda has never been conquered or never been invaded before that and everything. And they'd be like, we didn't issue 257 of jungle action. It happened here. And he said his words to that, well, fuck that. That's, that's, that's the story now. And so in, 2010, he actually wrote a miniseries about that time where Captain America goes into Wakanda and Nazis invade. Now, he really expands on this and shows that, yes, the Black Panther best Captain America, but then the two of them team up to stop an invasion along with the Howling Commandos. What was really like the really cool thing they did here, though, is that the narration of the story, the perspective of the story is from Gabe Jones. Gabe is one of the Howling Commandos. He is the, the only black member of the Howling Commandos. And it is from his perspective and seeing this nation of free black men with great technology and everything like that and living in what he saw as a black utopia. It's just, it's amazing to see it from the character of Gabe's eyes because as the story goes on, because, you know, Gabe is a pretty brave guy. He actually protects T'Challa's mom at one point and stuff like that. And T'Challa's grandfather, who's the Black Panther at the time, says, we're willing to give you citizenship to stay here. And it's just the struggle of Gabe deciding whether he wants to stay in this utopia or go back out and fight the good fight. And it's just like, that's the main through line of the story. Of course, you get some great action with Black Panther and Captain America beating up the Red Skull and fighting Nazi super soldiers and stuff like that. But this kind of heartfelt story about, you know, an almost forgotten Howling Commando character, really, if you're not Dum Dum Dugan, you kind of just fade into the background because you don't have the handlebar mustache, you know? This is like a hidden gem. I don't know if it did really well when it came out, but it is a fun story. And it's drawn by Denny Cowan, too. Yeah. I mean, Anything he does, the through light is he does tend to find that one other Black character that doesn't get a lot of play or sort of brings a little more spotlight to it. And you get to see these characters that you know exist. It very much reminds me of that first season of the Luke Cage television show, like Netflix show, where right. it's like, oh, it's like this one assistant DA that was on this other Netflix show. It's like the black guy from here, the black person there. It's like, oh, we're all just like comedic off. Parliament's awesome. But it's also like, it's very obvious what they're doing, but it's handled so well. It's like, I don't care. One thing I didn't know until we were, I was prepping for this episode is, of course, the revivals of Milestone Comics. Reggie Hudlin's been involved in them. I had no idea. He was originally offered to be part of the original team that back in the 90s. And that, that guy was like, oh, that's really cool that he was like, but he 
pass it up because he was saying I'm st- he was still focusing on his film career. And so since then, every opportunity to revive Milestone, he's been directly involved with. Yeah, I mostly, I think only really read Marvel stuff prepping for this when I saw the Milestone connection. I was like, oh, man, that was more in the bio of just his crazy like family history career that like starts with slaves escaping like hobbits and barrels to Canada. And like, did you read some of that? It's no. wild. Like the family history is like something out of a comic book. Like a couple of ancestors came to New Brunswick, then went back to the States. They were in Chicago, like during the fire, lost everything, had to rebuild. Another like ancestor was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Another like not too distant relative was like a tennis coach to Arthur Ashe. The whole family's like legendary, like epic-ish. Like it's wild. Like I would actually love if he did a graphic novel of his own family's history. Yeah, that'd be crazy. But yeah, the Milestone stuff though did... Uh, not only for a loop that it was like he was involved in this of course the most recent revival milestone he worked on the icon and rocket season one and uh, i read the first issue of that and he's very good at taking things you know like there is very much when you read it there's elements of superman there's elements of batman and he's kind of worked it into this story about a young woman basically convincing this powerful being this alien from another world who's, you know, taken the form of man and been raised here to, hey, you've got all these powers and you appear to have, you know, a bunch of resources. You should go out and like be a hero and save people. And he's like, why would I do that? You know, this is like, because the way she finds out about him is her boyfriend, who's taking advantage of her at the time, is attempts for them to steal from this guy's house. And that's how she, she meets him. And she, that's how she finds out about his powers. And he's like, well, why, like, you, like, you know, your friends, they try to steal from me. This is, this happens all over the place. And she's like, yeah, but we need heroes. We need people to stand up. And she said, don't you want to clean up what's happening on Martin Luther King drives everywhere? And he's like, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, Martin Luther King was a hero, was a superhero of his own time. And don't you think it's a disgrace that there's people that sell crack on those streets? Don't you want to clean that up? And he's like, but he's taking the very pragmatic stance of, well, if I just remove them, other people will show up and then other people show up after that. And she's like, yeah, but don't, don't you want to fight for something? Don't you want to fight for the good of humanity and help the people that you can? And it's that kind of speech. It's like this rousing speech that he finally does give in. And I feel like the audience as well is going along with it, kind of being like, yeah, no, I do. I do want to do better. I do want to help people sort of thing. And so, yeah, he does a really good job of like catching the retro feeling of comics and mixing it with some good message. And speaking of the Superman trope, if you will, we see sort of the exact same thing play out in one of his Spider-Man runs with Virtue, who is Peter Parker's partner at work. (laughs) And, you know, he's this big guy who comes to work for the newspaper and Comes from literally Hicksville, uh, came in a globe from space that crashed and a couple of old timers that couldn't have another kid find him. And it, it's a little twisty on it. It's almost a little bit more on like the kind of dark Superman side. But again, you have that, Hey, you're more than what your origin is. And there's a twist on the guy's origin that he's not just like a blonde Clark Kent 
allegory. He's like also kind of a super skull, but that he has other powers and he's more than what birthed him and he's more than what raised him. It's the weirdly kind of sweetest part of a in truly bonkers run where <laughs> like Spider-Man can't catch a break. The best uh, way I've ever seen of defeating absorbing man like ever. And as you're running rampant through the city and things are just getting tore up, absorbing man's powers are transferred to other people through. And I don't want to spoil how they actually briefly take care of him. But the city's a mess. Spider-Man is messier than normal, like loses his wallet to one of the villains. And like in one of the coldest like moments when he sees the culprit who was trying to hunt him down, like the mastermind behind everything that they've sort of drowned in this epic fight accident. He's like, I wonder if they told me what about my secret identity. It's like, Peter, you messy. <laughs> Just- <laughs> But through it, this virtue slash tilt character, he he does take a dark turn for a hot second and does like a cute leather look uh, and doesn't understand any of the gimp jokes that Peter Parker's making. That he sort of has this weirdly sort of sweet identity, like, who am I? What am I for? What do I do with these powers moment? And it just shows, again, like the the craft, that screenwriting talent to have multiple plots running at the same time and to have... A story sort of work on levels while you have literal hijinks and chaos uh you just have this one character sort of coming back with this evolving identity every time he finds out something new about his backstory yeah another hidden gem that i found was a uh, a special that dc put out called the black racer and shiloh norman so the black racer and shiloh norman special shiloh norman was a pupil of scott free the mr miracle and so he ended up taking on the mantle of Mr. Miracle as well and doing extremely amazing escape artist performances. So when Scott Free stopped performing, he took his place and started doing like big shows and everything like that. And actually Scott Free left him the, the mother box and everything. So he has some connection to the fourth world and everything like that. Well, during one of his big death defying feats, which a promoter, had actually rigged to try to actually kill him. He ends up pushing himself to the limit, and because he's using his powers so much, he gets the attention of the Black Racer, who is a knight of apocalypse, who he's this big, big black dude on skis. But it's like, it's weird. He has cosmic skis, and he's got this gigantic helmet. He looks like something out of He-Man. It's crazy. And so you see this big dude just flying through the sky, and he won't stop. So now Scott Free's trying to get away. He goes, that's right. I mean, Shiloh Norman is trying to get away. He's going through space and time and everything like that, and nothing will stop the Black Racer. It's an intense, fun thrill ride that's only like i think about 40 pages or something like that he's really good at bringing that cinematic fun like you were talking about with the spider-man stuff it's very obvious to me that it's just he's having a blast and then like getting the chance to work with these other great artists and stuff like that it just comes off the page and like when you hear him talk about comics it's not like he's like you know if you're talking to him about film he seems to be pretty calm as soon as you start talking about comics he's like oh my god he's yelling and he's moving his hands around he's like he is like one of the ultimate comics fans becoming comic creator stories, in my opinion. Yeah. The whole time I was kind of wondering, like, why hasn't he just done one of the movies? But then I kind of think he loves comics too much to take both of his jobs and make it work. 
like does movies loves writing comics loves reading comics i don't know like i think he probably would do a great job but i also i i worry however yeah. as we're in the middle of this when are we ever going to get a blade or what's it going to look like if they're going to throw everything out and go back to the drawing board again i he's my secret wish for if not actually i think writing and directing yeah i'd be down for that i know yeah. that he has tried to in the past get a live action static shock off the ground and has had trouble finding the um the studio to produce it but yeah if you put blade in his hands i think he'd have a good time especially since he's he taught he's talked about a lot about how he goes there was three blade movies and they did huge numbers yet marvel can't keep a comic on the regular of this character why is that so he's put a lot of thought and time into blade so yeah, yeah. So it would definitely be cool to see him do a Blade movie. And especially like the the sort of buddy cop stuff he does with Bladed Brother Voodoo is just chef's kiss. So fun. Because yeah. they're it shouldn't work because they're both kind of stick in the mud. Yeah, yeah, stick in the most straight man characters. But somehow I guess the comedy comes from the vampires and their reaction to the two of them. And maybe that's it. Yeah. But the way he writes those two characters together, it should not be as much fun as it is, but it's just nonstop yucks. Well, that's the thing. It's even like, you know, when you take two like straight man characters and you put them in an odd couple pairing, it's like, if you think back to it, Felix and Oscar, neither one of them are kind of funny on their own, but you stick them together. It's a funny thing. So you take brother voodoo and blade, you stick them together. You got room for conflict and comedy. Definitely. Also, the way he writes Monica, like he truly likes her. I just think he truly likes characters. You can tell when somebody who's writing a character, whether the character is good or bad, if they actually appreciate their strengths. Yeah. There was like a one shot with him and J. Michael where Spider-Man gets the brake speed off him and his eye plucked out. And I'm like, oh, like, am I rooting for an inheritor? Like, I'm not rooting for him, but you know what? He's coming hard. He's staying focused. He's not getting distracted with nonsense and speechifying. He's like, I've come here to do one thing. And that one thing is just get me another little spider stack. I think it's hands down to see that it's just he loves the characters he's, he writes and it shows on the page. And because of that, he's writing compelling stories from it. I don't know if he's got anything on the go currently, but uh, hopefully he'll have something once again soon. That would be great. Yeah, I will say, and we've talked many times, our feelings about crossover, and I've talked many times about my feelings on Civil War specifically. But next to the the Wolverine side quests in Civil War, the whole Black Panther and Storm of it all that he handled was the second sort of least objectionable part of that whole run. And also then pointing out the hypocrisy of the registration movement and them showing their whole butts with their reaction to the genuine sentiment that people felt about Bill Foster and what happened. Like they looked at it from a very cynical, oh no, they're turning this into a whole like black martyr situation yeah and like they were just like legitimately sad and in many other comic writers hands i mean that whole run was just like a crossover mess but that part was handled so delicately but then you still have like the very dark laugh when one of the the suits in the room that's worried about 
the public feeling bad for like the dead black man saying, oh, don't I hope they don't make another Emmett Till situation. And then the character's like, who's Emmett Till? And it's just it's so exactly what somebody like that would say in that moment mm. that you have like the darkest of chuckles yeah. and his ability to always be aware, especially when he's working with characters that are either in Peter Parker's case, living paycheck to paycheck or in the black hair face living, even in the case of T'Challa King on the edge of acceptance and tolerance or constantly fighting off interlopers or colonizers and thieves. He doesn't make it always about that, but it's, it's about that. And they're all aware of it. And it's not like pretending it's not happening. It's not yeah. like happy, happy, fun times. Because so many X-Men runs with Storm, we just don't acknowledge it. But whenever we see Storm and T'Challa and Hudlin's hands together, it's like, yeah, it's not always about it. And they're both very privileged for many reasons. But they also like have to deal with how they're perceived by certain people. Mm. I think he's he's left a mark. He's done some great work in there. And uh, yeah, left his mark on the Marvel Universe, especially. As I said, I look forward to the next comic work he does. Hopefully he does something again soon. Absolutely. Hopefully they let him do a Blade Run. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. That would definitely be cool. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Back Issue Bloodbath. Petula, where can the good folks find you? At initiative.com. On social things at Obesa Cantavit, O-B-E-S-A-C-A-N-T-A-V-I-T. And here with you. And of course, you can find everything I do over at geekcardshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at geekcard. Follow me on Instagram at Andrew underscore of underscore geek underscore hard. Follow this very show on Facebook at Back Issue Bloodbath, where we post a new episode every week. But the easiest way to make sure you don't miss an episode is to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice. And, uh, you know, tell your friends, tell your friends, friends, tell your acquaintances, tell somebody you see just reading a book. And hey, you like books? How about comic books? Hey, do you like the comic books? Do you like Neil Adams? You can start a conversation like that because it worked for having a conversation with Reginald Ludlin. That's, you know, there you go. This has been Back to Your Bloodbath. I've been Andrew Young. I'm Joe Neal. Have yourself a good. <laughs>